You are listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast exploring scripture with Dr. T. Michael W. Halcombe and Dr. Frederick J. Long. Welcome and enjoy. So I just want to welcome you to the Greek reading group through Ephesians, where we've stopped at verse 18 of chapter 1, right around here. And so I'd like to pick us up right at that point, just as a a little overview. Paul transitions in verse 15, which shows ascendaton, which is a lack of a conjunction. But uh, an ascendaton can mean either a break or no, it, no relationship, which may imply a break or a close connection in a parallel statement or in a kind of an emotional flourish. Here, there's not really a, a flourish going on, like a rhetorical flourish. There has been a high point to the praise of his glory, which we saw in 1 through 14 was a repeating refrain that provides some structure to the opening blessing of 1, 3 to 14. So then in verse 15 here, the, the dia tuto uh, is a anaphoric referent back. The tuto reflects back to the previous discourse. And, you know, we might debate how particular does it refer back. Does it refer back to the whole blessing that Paul is is acknowledging? Or perhaps to the last point, which is particularly the belief of the audience, you having heard the word of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation, in which also believing you were sealed. Uh, Seal that is officially marked. And if that's the case, uh, it may be that Paul particularly is referring back to the conversion, the hearing and believing and the official sealing that has occurred particularly to his audience those receiving this letter as a circular letter or one that might have gone only to Ephesus, although I believe it was a circular letter. And so the diatuto may be particularly referring back then to a conversion. And it's because of this, having heard of your faith and love for all the saints. So particularly in light of hearing about their conversion and being sealed. So on account of this reason, as a basis for his subsequent action, he does not stop giving thanks and then makes remembrance in terms of prayers, his prayers. So the diatuto ends up being a logical connector with an anaphoric referent back. So while there's no conjunction here indicating probably a, a break. On the other hand, there is a referent back via the diatuto to what he's just said. And, and that makes sense because he's he's now offering a prayers for them. And so this prayer, the prayers are given content through technically what would be an epexegetical clause, that is a clause that refers back to some noun. And here's the prayers. In a sense, it's kind of like the content of the prayers, the praying. And so then in verse 17, we get the the prayer itself. And as we noted last time, there is a lot of clarification of identity. Who God is. The God is God of the Lord. Who is the Lord? The Lord is Jesus Christ. So it's clarified who our Lord is. Our Lord is Jesus Christ. No other Lord implied. And God is not only in relationship to Jesus as Lord, but God is given appositional clarification as the Father of glory. Okay, so we learn a lot about who God is, who the Lord is. And then as the content of the prayers, then we get the main content. And that content is namely, 
Paul is praying that this God of this Lord Jesus, that the God, the Father of glory, the Father of all renown, would give to you a spirit that is wise, a spirit that is revelatory. So basically a spirit that has this kind of, these kind of uh, characteristics. And I don't think this is a, the Holy Spirit. I think this is a, a disposition, a kind of an inward disposition of wisdom and revelation. And this particularly comes about through the means. That's what this end preposition is, is doing. Through the means of having a knowledge of Jesus Christ in the knowledge of him, in knowing him. So what this means is that the, the way that we receive this disposition of wisdom and revelation, the way that we get that is through knowing Jesus. And that makes sense. Epigenosis, knowing him, in the knowledge of him. So in verse 18, we have something that scholars would call an accusative absolute statement, kind of like a genitive absolute. You know, when we think of a genitive absolute, it, it signals that there's a circumstance that's happening that's associated with the main verb, but that situation has a verbal component that has a different subject typically, than the, the main verb. So that's what a genitive absolute is. A genitive absolute is when you, you have a different subject, typically, or a different view of the subject with a different verbal idea, and it's put as a subordinate clause in relationship to the main verb. And there's whole studies been done on why this occurs. Here we have what is called an, an accusative absolute. And that's even rarer. People will struggle to say, well, why is it put into the accusative? Is Paul, uh, is Paul going back to the dative, to the you? Uh, well, that's a different case, so I don't think so. I mean, obviously it refers to the you, but here we see that there's a textual variant uh, that is a scribe has added a you, scribes have added a you here to clarify whose heart it is, which may be implied. Now you can see that the here in the apparatus that there's a C, which means that the the editors of the this UBS text that we're looking at, UBS five, they're uncertain whether this U should be there or not. So you, C indicates a low confidence rating. And the reason why is because you can see that in support of the omission, if you go halfway down this list, you see the double slashes and you see the omit. This is omitted in our earliest manuscript, P46, and by Codex Vaticanus, which is very old as well, not as old as P46. And so these two great witnesses are at odds with Codex Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus. So you have a you have a split of these important manuscripts. Moreover, notice that you have Marcion, according to Tertullian. And then the minuscule 1739, that's a pretty uh, reliable, it's a it's it's a minuscule, but its text type is early. It seems to have been reliant on an earlier text tradition. So this is a, a, a debate. That's why they give it a C rating. Now, we does it change the meaning? No, because we know probably whose eyes, <laughs> who, who, who this belongs to. We know it belongs to the audience, the you. But, so it's not really an issue. It's just that some manuscripts have this, some don't, and there's some debate about whether it should really be there or not. So this is an accusative absolute, and we have to ask, what is it doing there? Now notice that it's ramped up 
because it's a perfect tense participle. It's ramped up. It breaks the grammar. It's, uh, it's a bit of an aside in a sense. And yet Paul also ramps it up a bit by putting it into the perfect tense. Having been illuminated, so it's from the verb fotizo, fotizo, enlightened. So the, the eyes is the subject, so to speak. It's the accusative of reference in relation to the participle. It's kind of like a genitive absolute, how the, the subject of the genitive participle is put into the genitive case. Here, with an accusative absolute construction, the subject of the accusative participle is put into the accusative case. So it's the eyes of the heart or your heart having been illuminated already. I think that's what's implied. Now, the function of this, as I, I spoke last time, it's an important point. And the fact that we have a perfect participle, right, is indicating that something has happened with continued results. So, and I think, I think this, serve, this, this phrase serves a really important function because Paul needs to be careful to not make it seem that they're deficient. You're lacking. No, you already have a very significant foundation. In fact, the eyes of your heart have already been illuminated. And I think that's what he's saying here. In fact, it's out of this initial illumination that continues. It's resultant. It's, it's present. It's out of this context that there's even more to be known. So you're not deficient, you've already received something, but there is still more. I don't know, I think I think that's just a helpful perspective for us, you know, because a lot of times we're followers of Christ and we can affirm all that God's given to us. But it would be a problem for us to think that's all there is. I've arrived. I have everything. I'm complete in Him. Well, that's true, but there's also something that's untrue about that because there's so much more to learn. So much more to learn in many different ways. And particularly, right, the spirit, when we go back to what Paul is really praying for, is a spirit of wisdom and further insight. Revelation. Well, the accusative is... You know, we could ask about why the accusative, because normally we would think that this could be a genitive absolute. Okay, so, so, and what makes it resultant really is the perfect tenseness of it. That's what makes it a resultant, continued results. But your question is fair. Like, I was, just, I was hoping to get by without having to address that. No, just kidding. I mean, no, it is fair. Like, why accusative? And here we have to think about the basic uh, purpose uh, or significance of each of the, the cases. So the, na the nominative case is a naming case. Naming, it's pointing out, uh, and often a subject. The genitive is a case of description, but also of separation. The dative is a case of instrumentation, of it's, it's combining different senses in the history of the language also location, and also benefit, and, and personal reception and benefit. The accusative case is a case of extension. That's why it's the direct object. And so the, the accusative of time is during which, extending throughout which. And so that's where the, when you, you can compare the dative of time, the genitive of time, the accusative of time, the genitive of time is a kind of time. It's a characteristic of time. The dative is point in time. The accusative is extension of time. So just looking at the time uses of each of these cases can reveal something of the nature of the case itself. And so those time uses are really instructive. And so here, I think maybe the accusative case 
as an extensive case, I think shows that there's revelation extended to an already existent illumination, right? So if you would have put this as a genitive absolute, it might have suggested too much of a separate event or separate separateness. So on the one hand, you got God doing this, but then you have your heart doing this. Whereas the accusative absolute, I think, implies a coextensive, an extension, a realm that is the same or extending within it. And so, uh, anyway, I think that's probably, that would be my best guess at this point why the accusative of cases is, is, uh, is used. So he's basically, I think in the end what he's saying is that you've already received great illumination in the eyes of your heart. You already have it, and it's just a matter of building on to that, extending further beyond what you, in, in terms of what you already have. And that's really, I think, important. I do think there's, I think there's play on mystery cult phenomenon. This idea of illumination is going to come up again in chapter five, where Christ is the one who enlightens and shines upon us, just as the God and some of the language of mystery cult is, is that people receive illumination uh, from, from the God. And the thing is, is the mystery cults, it really was a mystery. Like, we don't even know exactly, because people were supposed to keep it a secret. Like, what it is, it was revealed. And so here, Paul's using the same terminology, same kind of network of ideas, even the same word, mysterion, except it's not a mystery. It's a secret that has become known. It's not to be just kept for secret, you know, personal salvation. Yes, 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 the mysteries. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're not supposed to talk about it, but this whole language of uh, being complete as well is also part of the mystery cult, and Paul's going to use that language of being complete, teleos. It shows up in 1 Corinthians uh, 13, I think, in a very powerful way, where he talks about uh, you know when I, when I become perfect. And seeing Christ fully, not in, as in a mirror, um, or not you know not just as in a mirror. So anyway, there's I think there's some shared religious language here that is significant but radically transformed. And now what's now why is Paul praying this? Why is he praying for this kind of revelation spirit, this wisdom? Well, here we get it in verse 18 uh, with this isto idena umas tis estin. Here we get the purpose. Now, this is a ramped up purpose clause. In order that you would know. So here the NESB, it's just not strong enough so that you would know. And the problem with so that in English is so that can mean result or it can be purpose. So I like to translate it, if it's clearly marked in the Greek text as purpose, I like to explicate it as such and use it in English in order that you would know. In order that you would know. And now here, last week I might have just touched on it, I can't remember. You have three instances of the interrogative pronoun tis, t. And you know this is an interrogative pronoun because of the accent over the iota. The indefinite pronoun looks the same as tis, t. In, indefinite interrogative pronoun, they have the same forms. But the interrogative pronoun will have an accent over the iota. And that's how you can distinguish them. But we're not in a direct question here. If we follow the punctuation to the end, we see that verse 19 ends with the period. Now, of course, the original manuscripts didn't have punctuation. 
Better editors will alert you to that. Uh, that you know, it's their best guess of what the punctuation is. So we have interrogative pronouns. What, what, what? But we don't have a direct question. So how are these prono interrogative pronouns functioning? How are they functioning? What would you say? Substantival. Um, not, not really. I think I may understand what you're saying because they're part of is statements. So in a sense, they're almost like a predicate adjective pronoun, like what is. So the hope is what? So in that regard, Molly, I think you're, you're kind of close onto it. So Molly says it's a substantive, which would be like a noun. Well, as a pronoun, they're obviously standing in the place of a noun. And the sentence construction, they're really functioning as the predicate pronoun <laughs> of an is statement. So the hope of his calling is what? Yes. Okay. So in terms of function, that's right. It's the content of the knowing. So what is it that you're knowing? But they're functioning then as indirect questions, which is the content of the knowing. So what was the original question? You could imagine saying, what is the hope of his calling? Question mark. What is the wealth of his glory of his inheritance among the saints? Question mark. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of the power of his strength? So those are the original questions implied. But Paul states these as, as indirect questions, as the content of what it is that he's praying that they know or that God would give, rather. So God would give them a spirit, uh, give them a disposition of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge of Jesus in order that they would know. And then what they're knowing are indirect questions. Now, in my uh, Koine Greek grammar, I talk about interrogative emphasis. And it's important for us, I think, to, to think about the role of questions to bring prominence to a discourse. Questions call for the audience to participate in the discourse in a way that a simple statement does not. Right? So when you if you ask a question, if you're asked a question, you're you have you need to engage. I mean you're expected to engage. And so when Paul is in some of these discourses uh, using a diatribe style with an imaginary, what's, what's called a diatribe, an imaginary partner that he's dialoguing with, and they're asking questions back and forth. You know, well, what benefit is there in being a Jew or in having the law? That's very engaging. That's an engaging style of discourse. And it, it's because it's an, it has a type of, there's a questioning going on. And there's a debate, and we, we're drawn to debate. We're drawn to drama. So questions can reflect a kind of a drama, so to speak, uh, an unfolding, you know, what's up? What's going on here? I mean, that's why, like, when there's, uh, you're driving down the road and there's uh, a slowdown, you're like, oh, why, you know, why is there a slowdown? Well, you realize, you get closer and closer, there's been an accident on the other side of the road. And we're all asking, what happened? What's going on? There's some question, some issue, some problem. We're slowing down to try to answer that question because we realize there's some question there. So these questions kind of slow us down. They get us thinking more deeply. So I think it's really fascinating. I don't think he needed to use these indirect questions. I think he could have used just hoti clauses Right? I think he could have used OT. He could have used other ways to express this content. But he uses 
an interrogative pronoun. And I think that's to heighten a sense of intensity, a heightened our awareness. Like these are important questions to ask. My goodness, these are. What is this all about? What is the hope? What is this wealth? What is this surpassing greatness of his power? My goodness, this deals with human existence, hope, wealth, and power. I mean, who doesn't, who's not interested in, in, in these kinds of things? Yeah, so I think these are prominence devices. And, and as we see these questions, we also see them building to a kind of a crescendo in verse 19 and 20. So just to translate this, we get What is the hope of his calling? And calling here, I think, has to do with like an invitation to participate in something greater. What is it that God has invited us to? What is it that we can hope in? And hope was a big topic. Uh, cults dedicated to S-P-E-S, the Latin, God to hope, spes. Uh, then the next question is, tis, tis o plutos tes, toxes tes, cleronomias abdu in tis agis. What is the wealth of the glory of his inheritance among the saints. And that's kind of a mouthful there. So what is the wealth of the glory of his inheritance? Like, what does that even mean? So what's happening is you're piling up all these genitives, and we have to kind of parcel that out. Now, glory, here, this may be what's called a descriptive or adjectival genitive. And this may be then describing Plutos, wealth or riches, in terms of them being glorious. And what is the glorious riches or wealth of his inheritance? Okay, so tes doxes is kind of the outlier here. Like if we removed it, it would make really good sense. We talk about the wealth of 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 his inheritance like that that's language that makes sense so the doxes here is modifying the plutos in a way i think to ramp it up the glorious wealth now he could have used an adjective which means glorious but he doesn't he uses the noun in a modifying relationship and i think that's a way to ramp it up the the glory so really the glory the renowned wealth what is the renowned, all-glorious wealth of his inheritance among the saints? Yes. Yeah, this is a genitive. It's a feminine noun. There's an implied estin uh, here. There's an implied estin. Yeah, so what is... What is? So, yeah, this is the subject. This is the, you know, technically the pronoun is the predicate pronoun of an is. So the wealth is what? So what is the wealth or the riches? And then you just have this pileup of genitives. And what I'm suggesting is that this could have been an adjective modifying wealth, but when an author chooses to use a concrete noun when an adjectival modifier could have been used, it's probably because the noun is more concrete. And that's why I'm saying it's ramped up a little bit. In other words, this, and we can we, we remember that to the praise of his glory, right? This is already a theme. God has demonstrable glory. God is glorious. And his wealth is glorious. And that's that's his point here, is, is to really stress this wealth uh, through its being renowned and glorious. 
and wealth of his inheritance. So here we have to decide what kind of genitive is it in relation to wealth. Maybe possessive, the wealth that belongs to his inheritance, or or that might be content, the wealth which is his inheritance. Say that again. Partitive, yeah, the wealth which is one part of his inheritance, yeah. So there's some relationship between these. Um, or is it the wealth for his inheritance, which isn't best expressed by the genitive, but somehow this wealth belongs to or is in relation to his inheritance. And this inheritance then is qualified by among the saints. Yeah, I think it's probably, I would guess it's spatial, it's like spatial among, among the saints. In other words, there's some sense that this inheritance belongs to them, it, it comes into them. Another way to take it is that the inheritance is in the saints. So he gets to inherit us. But, you know, this gets really difficult to interpret. I, I do think it's probably an inheritance that uh, gets shared in the realm of the saints. Now, this is significant in the context of Asia Minor. I actually went back and reviewed some of my commentary notes, and there's a I have an extensive set of paragraphs where I, I research how the emperor and the empire was increasingly grabbing people's inheritances, and they were mandated to leave 10% and you, if you didn't, you were at risk of having it all taken by the emperor. So, like, I track this down. Like, and this is happening under the emperor Claudius. Uh, this is this is this is important. So, in other words, who gets your inheritance? How great is that inheritance, and who gets it? And families and wealthy people, you know, would leave some for the emperor. And so, the emperor was gaining more and more inheritance money. And so this is something of a precious commodity in the ancient world. I mean, because this could set you up for life, literally. You know, so to make sure you give some to the emperor. And this this created a system of uh, benefaction so that the emperor is constantly giving all this money, but he's also constantly grabbing people's money. So the emperor is grabbing people's money and then is able to give it to maintain his status of power and position. <laughs> Molly, I wasn't going to say that, but I mean, you, you can say that. But no, I mean, it is. It is. This is a big system. And this system of, of the cycle of patronage and maintaining positions of power, this is precisely what Jesus confronts in Luke 21 about uh, don't be, I think it's in Luke, and it might be Luke 19, don't be like those who, who want to be called benefactor and lord it over people. He's condemning the whole system. Yeah, it's it's really significant. Uh, and we, we need to reflect on that. So Paul, by using these terms of wealth and riches and inheritance, is, is tapping into the system and, and explaining that there's an alternative system that God has in play, and it's among the saints. He's the one who divides it up. It's for us. It's among us. It's an inheritance, and it's a great inheritance. And we don't have to worry about the emperor taking it from us. And this is going to come back up again in chapter twenty, in chapter two, where he's going to talk about um, in verse seven of chapter two. Look at this. In order that he would show in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his favor in kindness towards us. Okay, so this is something that we're looking forward to, that in the coming ages, God's surpassing wealth will be demonstrated to us, particularly in terms of his grace and in kindness. You know, there's a lot of people who presently don't experience, we don't experience that from how powers that be. Life is brutal. 
And I don't have to tell you all that. I mean, it, you, you know, some of you come out of context where it is rough, really rough. And I don't need to tell you that. You know that. So Paul is, is writing to followers of Jesus who are not in the power structures, who see it all happening. And, and you might get a sense of, we're missing out. We're missing out. From the world's perspective, we're missing out. And he's saying, you're not missing out. It's going to come. There's going to be a grace, a favor given to you in the future. And this future dimension of grace is found in 1 Peter. It's very surprising. Because a lot of times we think of grace as past tense. No, there's a grace that's also present tense and a future grace, a future favor and favors that will be awarded us. And we need to remember that because otherwise we think we're missing out now and we're giving up things now. We're not going to get them now. See, this is what Peter was saying to Jesus, saying, what will we receive? We've left everything for you. What's in it for us? And he says, I'm telling you, Peter, you're receiving a lot now. Brothers and family and sisters. Yeah, you have left kinsfolk. You have left the system where if you play the good child and remain you know, faithful to your family in a certain way, and there's, you know, there's a certain kind of safety that you've relinquished because you followed me. Yeah, because we're, we're prophetic. We're challenging structures. You're... But he says you're gaining a new family. And we're part of that new family. You and I are part of that new family. And friendship. And he says, moreover, when the Son of Man sits on the throne, you also will judge the tribe, tribe, uh, 12 tribes of Israel. He's saying there is something in the future for you very glorious. There's something still glorious for us in the future. We don't see it yet. We don't see it. Paul, interested, I know this is a big digression, you can study his letters in terms of a progression and he gets a little bit more clear, a little bit more clear, a little bit more clear about what will happen when he dies. If you look at his earlier letters, it's all far off, right? And his resurrection, you know, which is true. I mean, that's a big part of it. In, in in Philippians, he's like, I don't know what's better, to stay here, keep ministering to you, or to, to die and go be with the Lord. <laughs> and then in 2 Corinthians, written before Philippians, he talks about when we die, we have a, 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 a tent, a special tent for us. He see, he's starting to think, what's happening if I die? And Ephesians is a part of that trajectory. I would argue. And what we see, uh, this is anticipating a little bit, verse uh, going in chapter 2, we are actually, there's actually a spot for us to be seated in the heavenly realms with Jesus. Seated with him in the heavenly places. And so, again, he's, he's more and more thinking about what's next when I die. Yes, it's all part of the grace. You've been saved by grace. It's all a part of God's wealth, his abundance, his kindness, his favor. And it comes out of his mercy, we're going to see, his mercy and love. That's what, that's what meets our human condition. So when we get into chapter 2, we're just anticipating a little bit. He's going to be describing our terrible sinful condition and lostness. That is precisely met with God's love, mercy, forgiveness, and boom, that's what causes this transformation to take place in us. So yeah, we're just on the verge of getting there. Yeah. So yeah, and this is all part of his great wealth towards us. And so verse 19, to come back, pull us back to the, the third what. What is the surpassing greatness? And then there's a pileup of power words. His power for us, is emas, 
his power dunamis for us, the ones who are believing. Our faith unleashes power as well. It participates in power. He's great power for us. And this power corresponds with kata, tein, energian, tu kratus teis iskus aptu, according to the working of the might of his strength. So you've got a pileup of four different power words right here in verse 19. Accordance with the power of the strength. So right there, so you've got dunamis, you've got energia, you've got kratos, and you've got ipiscus. So uh, he's emphasizing something here, right? He's emphasizing something. And this this power is great. It is surpassing. It doesn't, There's. It, it's over everything. Now, how do we distinguish these terms? We can say, well, they're overlapping. Certainly, they're probably overlapping. But you can begin to discern some difference. Energia, for example, is kind of like an active power. It's stressing kind of the the activity of it. And here also the inwardness. So it's the inward activity of it. Some of these other ones are more like outward manifestation, like the brute, you know, experience of it. And then some of the other ones might have to, you know, excuse is, might have to do more with like a, a raw kind of potential. But this is, you know, like a capability. So anyway, it, it may be helpful to slight, that these have slight different connotations. And uh, so they're, in other words, their ordering may be significant. Like, why are they in this order? They may fall under dunamis. Like dunamis, I think, is the big one. And this is what people are desirous of. They want to experience power. They want to have dunamis. And I found this in a work by uh, uh, Ramsey McMullen called Paganism in the Roman Empire. I think that's the name of the book. And I found this discussion, and he just explains that, that this term, dunamis, this is what people are really after. And he's describing this, not from a Christian perspective, just from a phenomenology of the ancient world. It's a really fascinating study. I just got lucky. You know, you kind of, as you're researching, you just kind of find these, these little discussions, these little nuggets. Now, I, again, to anticipate just a little bit, Paul has a digression in chapter 3 where he talks about his ministry, he's really setting himself as an exemplum of what? Of receiving grace and power. At the, It's a chiasm, and I'll show you that when we get there. At the very middle of the chiasm. So it's an, it's an A, B, C, D, E. I think there's seven elements and works its way back out. At the very middle is this prepositional phrase merging energia with dunamis this is the very center notice on the outer to me to me has been given has been given what what's been given the grace grace of god grace of god so grace is outer is given to me according to the working of his power. That's the very middle. So it's a very powerful complex. When we get to chapter 3, I'll show you this chiasm. But it, it's just profound because this is what he's praying for them. Also, in chapter 3, the later part of chapter 3, he's praying that they would have the power and the strength to comprehend God's love, which suggests that there's maybe a spiritual struggle there. Precisely at that point of are we able to receive God's love or not? Because that's the game changer, is God's love. Without that love, we are not able to love others, sadly. We're not able to. 
because we haven't been transformed ourselves. What happens is that we will always probably want to see people as means to our ends. Right? What? Yeah, that's what the emperor does. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they, yeah, they're means to his ends. So this is why God has revealed us Jesus, a different kind of emperor, really, a different kind of ruler, a different kind of king. God has revealed Jesus to us uh, to change the world, literally, from the inside out. And Paul attests to where this really begins in each of our hearts, inside. And of course, that affects our communities. So I don't want to, you know, we need to be careful because, you know, there's like Western individualism. And I think, you know, your cultures, you know, people will talk about, well, there's different, you know, collectivists or group kind of cultures and, you know, ways of thinking. And when I read scripture, I see affirmation of both. But I do see a call for the individual to be faithful to God. And we do have examples of that, right? Where the, the individual is called out, despite everyone else, to be faithful to God. Elijah, for example. And he thinks he's all alone. He's got this powerful experience. He's doing battle against society. And then the Lord, you know, delivers him and he's thinking, oh, I'm all alone. He goes, no, 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 you're, there's actually 7,000. So it's a, it's a both and, because it does come down to us in our response to God. Each of us matters so individually. So I, I don't know how we get away from individuals and individual response. I mean, Jesus himself was an individual, but he forms a community. So it's a, it's a powerful both and. And so our correct, my corrective as a you know, Western individual who we focus on individualism is to recover that communal dimension. People from a different kind of collectivist thinking, their need is for that individual dimension and that work of God's grace deep in your heart. So that such that you can maybe even speak to your culture, to the collectivist culture and say, look, you know, and, and there's need to reform. And I need to speak to my individualist culture and say, look, we need community. <laughs> We're part of a community. Let's live life differently, more interdependently. Instead, we just get siloed, and it's awful. It's awful for our Christian discipleship. We have so much to learn and, and from, from every, you know, other people from other cultures. We have so much to learn, and, and it goes both ways. But anyway. I think we do want to have community. I think, I think one of the things I, I like that we set up because I think the church is not doing a lot to kind of like confront the heretics that are shit. Yes, yes, we do not. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and sadly, this this is default for us. We have what are and horses. They put what are called blinders on, and this is to to keep them kind of just focused on the road and not see a child running past and freaking out or. You know, and then the you know they're 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 in the midst of all this turmoil, so they're called blinders. I think that sometimes we have these blinders that we don't see what we don't see. We don't know what we don't know, and that's why we need to be able to take a step back and uh, having brothers and sisters from all over the world, like we enrich each other, and you help us to take down that blinder and say, "Ooh, I got to open up my perspective and." Yeah, we, we do. And we, re we really need each other. We really need each other. So this power is very significant. And so I'm just giving you a little foretaste of what's coming in the discourse. And so what's key here is he's really ramped it up. So to go back to verse 19, uh, four different power words used. And then it gets even particularized, like in terms of what is it? How is his power worked in particular? What is this power? Well, he's worked it in Christ, in the Christ. How? Here you have two post-nuclear participles. So in Ergesen, he worked it 
So this power, the energia, so remember that energia has to do with the particular manifestation of the power, like a, a working of it, and there is some dimension of interior, interior, interiorness to it, which is with the morphine N. So it's a working, it's an in-working, but it's, 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 a, it's, it's accomplished, which he accomplished or brought about. See, brought about isn't really strong enough, is it? Because you don't, you don't recognize that that also is a, a, a power term which he worked out in the Messiah, which he, you know, it's hard to translate that. Well, you said, let me, you said that, that, that. I'm not sure that that catch, catches it uh, because that gets it, that, that, that makes it a little bit more static as a goal, which he energized and, dem which he energized powerfully, which he, which he powerfully, uh, accomplished something something there's something going on here so there's a redundancy of the term so this would have been heard and and then the key then is how did he demonstrate it in two ways two participles these are post nuclear placed they're placed after the main verb they're they're functioning to explain how it was powerfully conducted raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand, at his right, in the heavenlies. Two dimensions of God's power on display. Resurrection, ascension. There it is. There it is. Right there. That's God's power displayed. That is very good that position is pointing that out. Yes. Yeah. And in 21, positionally, Paul stresses it's far above. And you have, you start getting this uh, emphasis based on number, all rule and authority and power and lordship, and every name being named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. So this is where we'll pick up next time and get into chapter two. So thanks so much. Interested in growing your ancient language skills but not sure where to start? Glosa House can help. From illustrated readers and short stories to lexicons and grammars, Glosa House offers a variety of resources for beginning, intermediate, and experienced ancient language learners. Head to glosahouse.com today. Glosa House, language resources for the global community.